Okay, so, so welcome. So for the new faces, my name is Charles Small. I'm the director of ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. So welcome to our seminar series. You have materials on your desk that show some of the other programs we do. Um, we run academic programs at McGill, Columbia, and Harvard in the United States. We're also at Sapienza in Rome. We just started a program in Paris at the Sorbonne. And we're starting a program in the summer at Oxford University teaching professors how to uh, create courses and, and carry out courses at universities around the world for credit. Amazingly, uh, there aren't really courses on contemporary forms of anti-Semitism in the academy. So ISGAP is trying to create uh, a way to sort of fill this gap. Um, and this is not a random program, but a, an important program. Uh, there's a joke in there somewhere. All right, I'll try. All right, so it's um, a great pleasure and an honor to be able to introduce you to Glenn Fetter. Glenn is originally from New York and he's based in Paris. He's a, a new recent uh, senior research scholar, fellow at ISGAP. He, he studied at Boston University and the University of Chicago and went on to France, to Paris, where he did his PhD um, at the Sorbonne at Paris 4, at a very, one of the best universities in France and the world. His research was in political philosophy, looking at Nietzsche and Tocqueville, and issues of democracy and the, the, um, the vibrancy of democracy and how democracy, how can democracy, democracy defend itself against reactionary uh, social movements or interests. Uh, Glenn worked not only in academia, but he also spent many years with the investigation, investigative project, Steve Emerson's group, uh, for six years doing very important research on radical political Islam. Um, he also worked for the, uh, the Israel Project and the Joint in Europe and around Europe uh, for years. So Glenn has a very uh, important perspective. It's sort of uh, looking at anti-Semitism and, and Jewish concerns at the practical level, but also at the philosophical level. And I'm sure you'll see it reflected in his talk tonight about the Muslim Brotherhood, which is becoming uh, a very important force, not just in the Middle East, but I would argue uh, very much in the, particularly in the West, but in, in the Western context, I'd say, particularly in the United States, that there's an issue here that we need to really become aware of, and there's nobody better than Glenn to map it out for us. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charles, for that kind introduction, and thank you all for coming tonight. Like Charles said, New I'm a native New Yorker, so it's a real treat for me to be here and see not only new faces, but also um, friends and, and family. So a warm welcome to all of you. I'd like to begin uh, with the title, The Battle Against Liberal Democracy and the Jewish Question from Marx to Kutub. It's rather ambitious. Uh, so we're going to go through um, two of the three parts a little bit quicker and then concentrate on Kutub, who is the spiritual founder of the Muslim Brotherhood and that organization in particular, because of the I think the urgent relevancy of this, um, of this particular question. Now, if you look at the past uh, century, at the most important formidable movements against liberal democracy, um, you can see that there's basically three movements that have been integral to, um, to, to, to the war against liberal democracy. First, 
not in any particular order, but you have communism, Nazism, and radical Islamism, which is the pressing issue of today. Now, <coughs> the Jewish question appears very differently in each of these movements. Although what's interesting is that it takes a central role in at least two out of three of these movements. And under communism, it actually takes relatively uh, disproportionately important role in, in Marx's work as well. So <coughs> right away, you have a bit of an anomaly. Because if you look at the Jewish people who are at its height, around 0.2% of the world population, how is it that this little people, this, this relatively small proportionate amount of people have found themselves <coughs> center stage in one of the most important battlegrounds between these gigantic movements like communism, Nazism, radical Islamism? How did Jews get in this spotlight, basically? That's one of the things I'm trying to, um, <coughs> I'd like to bring to light in this lecture. Now, What's interesting about Judaism is that it's the only human group that is an identity, uh, the only human group identity, or one of the only, arguably, that's a, both a, that's a people or a nation, a race, a race and an ethnicity, and at the same time, a religion. And all three of these movements, in some respect, have gone after or attacked a different aspect of Jewish identity. That doesn't mean that they weren't um, mixed and they didn't, and in some cases, go after all three parts of that identity. But generally, Marx, um, <coughs> Marxism, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Jewish question re relatively quickly, the, one of his main texts, uh, went after Judaism as a, as a people or a citizen. <coughs> then Nazism, of course, um, Hitler went after Jews as a race or ethnicity. And then <coughs> ra radical Islamism has a kind of pseudo-theological attack against um, Jews. So in all three cases, you have different aspects of Jewish identity which have been um, <coughs> undermined. And one of the focuses of this talk will be on how these movements not only attacked um, Judaism per se, but used Judaism as a political tool to further their ambitions. The Jews somehow became the symbol of everything that they wanted to undermine in all three, <coughs> in all three cases. So. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to policy, basically, if we can understand and decipher what's going on, we can have policy initiatives. If, for example, <coughs> these, um, these, these movements uh, believe what they're saying, in other words, believe the myths that they're spreading, then um, we have to both dispel those myths and at the same time understand the social, political, economic conditions that give rise to regime types that collapse like uh, under Nazi Germany, and, um, and combat that as well, which is, of course, very complicated, difficult work. Now, let's uh, go quickly through Marx, and I think it's important to un understand that, in, for all of you who haven't read um, <coughs> On the Jewish Question, it's uh, a text that, I, that I've been rereading recently with um, a bit of shock, actually, because as some of you might have forgotten, he, you know, he was a, a, a Jew who, whose family converted to um, Christianity at one point, Protestantism, but uh, ultimately, you know, from his father's side, uh, <coughs> comes from a rabbinical family. So it's, it's interesting that he produced um, this type of document, The Jewish Question. 
Now, if you look at the Jewish question, a lot of it's a reaction to Bruno Baer, who's a kind of Hegelian, who tries to basically argue that Judaism is completely incompatible with um, the state, that the Jew and the citizen, the Jew cannot be a Jew and a citizen at the same time. <clears throat> and he, he tries to, Marx doesn't go that far, but he, um, he goes in the same direction and argues that basically the two are incompatible. Religion should be relegated to the private sphere, <clears throat> but that there's, also, that there's ultimately a tension <clears throat> between the two. Um, and I think some people, we forget also that Marx in his text on the Jewish question actually goes after human rights. He actually criticizes the Declaration of the Rights of Man and argues, quote, that the rights are egotistical man, man separated by other men in the community, and ultimately rejects uh, the notion of human rights. So it's both anti-Semitic, but also anti-liberal. Um, and I'll, I'll end part, well, my major analysis of Marx with a quote, just to give you a little taste of what he thought about Jews, and this is an important movement because, remember, the radical left had adopted a lot of Marxist ideas um, today even, and has integrated that even with radical Islamism to a certain extent. So he writes, <coughs> Marx writes, let us consider the actual worldly Jew, not the Sabbath Jew, as Bauer does, but the everyday Jew. Let us not look for uh, the secret of the Jew in his religion, but let us look for the secret of his religion in the real Jew. What is the secular basis of Judaism? Practical need, self-interest. Uh, what, what is the worldly religion of the Jew? Huckstering. What is his worldly God? Money. So this is what Karl Marx said <coughs> about um, Jews. And this had, of course, an enormous influence on Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, to different extents. And I won't go into, we don't have time to go into the practical implications of this, but under Stalin there was an idea of creating an autonomous zone for Jews, which he did create up in, near, in Siberia. And if he hadn't died when he did in 1953, um, it's, it's, it's possible that things could have been much worse than just occasional you know, purges and things like that, which not only Jews were caught up in, but millions of other Soviets. There were also targeted killings against Jews. There was something called the doctor's plot and so on. Now, the reason why I want to first touch on, um, you know, that I first touched on Marxism is because in the 1960s and 70s, um, <coughs> this um, kind of, this, this line of thought um, was very popular in the Soviet Union, and it gave birth to the whole apartheid libel, accusing Israel as an agent of imperialism, <coughs> and later um, became normalized, in, in a sense, uh, I think, within certain media and university circles. So despite their, despite their diametrically opposed views um, on, uh, and uh, let's say, despite their diametrically opposed views on a variety of issues, radical leftism and radical Islamism found a common uh, bridge, let's say, on the Israel question and demonizing Israel. On every other issue, um, they're almost poles apart. Uh, when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to gay rights, they couldn't be uh, more different. But when it comes to Israel, they are, <coughs> they are in, they're in the same, uh, they have the same kind of rhetoric uh, and, and same ideas in some, in, in some circles, in many circles. So while Marx's anti-Semitism was based on uh, the Jew as a citizen of the people, 
we're moving on to Hitler and the Nazi party, I think it's, under, under, it's important to understand the past and especially Nazi Germany if we, honor, if we want to understand um, radical Islamism because there's a lot of uh, crossover, unfortunately, between, the, um, between this movement and, um, and radical Islamism. <coughs> so Marx, uh, <coughs> Marx focused on the Jew as a citizen or people, whereas Hitler fo focused on the Jewish identity as an ethnicity or race. Now, <coughs> if you look at, um, it's very difficult to analyze uh, the Nazi party's thought because in some respects it was intellectually bankrupt. They didn't have even a thinker of the weight of Marx or in the sense of uh, Qutub in radical Islamism who did write you know, volumes on various subjects and you know, some of it was uh, rather, rather bizarre but ultimately extremely rigorous. The Nazi party purged a lot of the university. They simply couldn't replace um, a lot of the teachers with their own. So we'd have to look at some of Hitler's statements and I don't want to focus too much, <coughs> too much on that but if you, if, if you look, excuse me, at his statements, you can see that he um, equates the Jew with democracy and with the emerging democracy that he, that he was sought to overthrow. Remember, he was elected democratically, but at the same time, um, he, he didn't believe in democracy. He, he said, quote, the Fuhrer is the supreme judge of the nation. There is no position in the area of constitutional law in the Third Reich, independent of this elemental will of the Fuhrer. <clears throat> so um, why did he, and, and he writes that democracy, quote, is the canal through which Bolshevism lets its poison flow into the separate countries and lets it work there long enough for these infections to lead to a crippling of intelligence and of the forces of resistance. <clears throat> so democracy is this crippling force and he actually attributes to the Jews to creating democracy and Bolshevism. Um, he says that the very canal of democracy, he calls it a canal, um, opened the way for the, quote, fantasy of Jewish Bolshevism. He says democracy is fundamentally, and I'm quoting him, not German, it is Jewish, which I see as almost a compliment because democracy is such a wonderful thing. He attributes this to the Jews even though you know, I think that um, this is, of course, inaccurate. Uh, that, and he says, this Jewish democracy, with its majority decisions, has always been, without exception, only a means towards uh, the destruction of the existing Aryan leadership. So in this case, uh, we see again that um, the Jews are considered a kind of political tool, the symbol of a movement which a counter-movement or counter-ideology is trying to overthrow. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe these myths. It doesn't mean that it's simply a political tool, but it was used as one, and we have to understand it as such. Now, we get to um, <coughs> the link between the Nazis and the Islamists, or radical Islamists. Um, <coughs> while the far white right is, of course, worrisome, there was another movement that I think combines uh, <coughs> elements of the far right with the most extreme <coughs> types of religious fanaticism. Um, <coughs> now, a few months after the world learned about Auschwitz in November 1945, there was a pogrom against Jews. <coughs> but this pogrom did not happen in uh, Poland or Germany. 
it happened in Egypt. And the reason why it happened in Egypt was because the Mufti of Jerusalem was, uh, you can see here, the Mufti of Jerusalem was orchestrating a pogrom in cooperation with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So we see these two movements are bleeding into each other at this point. Um, in Jerusalem, he was, the Mufti of Jerusalem was filling um, uh, leaflets and flags with swastikas and encouraging young Arab youth to greet each other with the Nazi salute. So he's trying to perpetuate this, 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 this uh, ideology and to keep it going. And he actually had, as you can see, direct contact with Hitler. They exchanged letters and he received financial support from them. He, he, received, he also um, was uh, overseeing one of the one of the SS, um, one of the, the, called the Waffen SS units, <coughs> which was a Muslim SS unit. So there was a lot of, uh, let's say, crossover between, um, between the two movements. And they adopted much of the same philosophy, which they mixed. So they mixed, uh, the, the Mufti mixed a lot of Jewish conspiracy thought with a kind of a pseudo-theological critique of Judaism, uh, saying, <clears throat> I don't really want to quote at length, you can always read it on your own, but it's useful to see some of what it looks like, it says the hatefulness that displayed towards great prophet, um, what hardship and trouble they caused him, how many intrigues they launched. So in other words, now there are conspiratorial people, but towards from the very beginning, um, their prophet, and towards um, later on, all sorts of other things, you know, basically they were accused of starting almost every single war since, since uh, medieval times, so <clears throat> even before. So this was the kind of propaganda that was coming out of the Mufti and his relation with um, Hitler. So the Jews became an ideal, ideal target because um, he could use them to represent the enemy of Islam, which he wanted to spread worldwide, and simultaneously the symbol of British imperialism that the Egyptians and the Palestinians were rebelling against. Now, in 1946, the Mufti was being pursued as a war criminal, and he moved to great, he, uh, by Great Britain, and he fled to Egypt, and he became the personal advisor of Hassan al-Banna. Now, Hassan al-Banna was the founder of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. So we have my Muslim Brotherhood page, one of them. <coughs> And you can see him on the bottom left of this. So he uh, became the advisor to Hassan al-Banna. So we have a kind of political alliance between these two groups. Um, so now I think we've arrived at the third and most timely threat against democracy today. And somehow history is repeating itself and bleeding into itself. And that is radical Islamist extremism. Um, I just want to make a very quick political philosophy note before we go into this, because I'm going to use two terms which are not so orthodox. There's a big debate in um, there's a de there's a big there's a big debate about the word totalitarianism, and it happens to be a lot of Jewish intellectuals that use this word uh, because, of course, they understand the stakes involved. Not necessarily practicing Jews, but Raymond Aron has a kind of critique of Hannah Arendt's view of totalitarianism which we don't have time to go into, but Aron uh, has some other suggestions, and 
being that uh, he revived, was one of the few people who actually revived Tocqueville, who you'll see in the rest of this talk has had a pretty profound influence on myself and on my explanations for <coughs> what's going on today. Um, he revived the concept of soft despotism um, as well. And I think we have to really understand what Tocqueville means by soft despotism. And I'm going to use that word, and I'm also going to use the word hard despotism, which is the opposite. Hard despotism is a kind of external, um, like, a, like a Hitler or a Stalin, an external force that oppresses an internal force. But soft despotism comes from within. So it's a, it's a more subtle, but ultimately just as powerful, even more powerful um, issue. And there's just two quotes I'll, I'll make about soft despotism, and then we'll move on to, to, the, to the Muslim Brotherhood and their network around Europe and around the United States. That's, what I'm, that's going to be my focus. So Tocqueville says, it is in fact difficult to conceive how men who have entirely renounced the habit of directing themselves could succeed at choosing well those who will lead them. And one would not only and one would not make anyone believe that a liberal, energetic, and wise government can ever issue from the sufferance of a people of servants. So he's here talking about apathy and um, what happens when we become apathetic um, in the kinds of leaders that we elect when people become apathetic or indifferent <coughs> or if they're uneducated. So that's one quote. And then I think it's important, too, to make reference to a very important a very crucial quote in Tocqueville's work where he talks, he basically, he basically predicts political correctness and cultural relativism through his conception of tyranny of the majority, which anyone who studied some poli-sci 101 probably heard thrown around a little bit. So he says, and I find this fascinating, he says thus, he ta he's talking about the, the situation of soft despotism, he says thus, after taking each individual by turns in its powerful hands and kneading him as it likes, the sovereign extends its arms over society as a whole. It covers its surface with a network of small, complicated, painstaking, uniform rules through which the most original minds and the most vigorous souls cannot clear a way to surpass the crowd. It does not break wills, but it softens them, bends them, and directs them. It rarely forces one to act, but it constantly opposes itself to one's acting. It does not destroy, it prevents things from being born. So please remember this uh, quote as we talk about the Muslim Brotherhood's methods and how they, they spread throughout Europe um, and the United States. Now, just a quick primer. Basically, they were founded in 1928, the Muslim Brotherhood, in their reaction to the British occupation of Egypt. Um, there, um, after the collapse of Ottoman Turkey, um, the abolition of the caliphate by Ataturk Albana, Hassan Albana, who's down there on the left, he aimed to build a movement which would prevent Islam from falling deep into what he called the state of Jahiliyyah, which is a pre-Islamic period of paganism. However, in 1949, he was assassinated. And basically, the person who took over the Muslim Brotherhood was, um, was Said Qutb, who is here. Uh, you can see perhaps some physical influences of other movements <laughs> in Said Qutb's appearance. Um, he actually was a student at, in Greenlee, Colorado, at Colorado State. He was actually a student in the United States um, studying education, studying how we educate ourselves. And he was sent there by the Ministry of Education, the Egyptian Ministry of Education. And there's a scene in a book that he wrote 
after he returned from the United States. It's a book that he wrote called The America I Have Seen. And basically, in this book, he's, he's sitting in a church. And after the sermon, there's a dance, basically. And I, I just want to play this. I won't play it too loud, but just so we can kind of visualize if that works even. So he's basically in this dance, and he's watching these people dance. And you probably remember this, some of you in this room might actually remember this song. <laughs> I see some heads nodding. <laughs> uh, anyhow, it's, it's a song uh, that um, is about a kind of seduction. So at the time, it might be considered slightly racy. It's really more about a guy trying to convince a girl to stay over and not go out into the cold. And Saeed Kutub is sitting there watching this dance. And I believe at this very moment, he cracks. He cracks mentally. Um, he's describing chests pressed against chest, lips pressed against lips, and he's um, describing the music itself, which he thinks he hears a kind of animal, it, for him it's a kind of animal screeching, um, and he's totally disgusted with what he's seeing. American life in general is totally disgusting to him. He considers it this kind of over-sexualized, uh, debased, primitive, type of existence. Um, and remember, this is, you know, 1950s America, relatively socially conservative society. So, you know, I can only imagine Saeed Kutub today, and, you know, uh, walking around New York, watching an episode of Sex in the City, I think he'd probably have a heart attack. But, <laughs> um, you know, he, he ultimately he, he rejects America. He rejects democracy and America. And I think it was at that very moment uh, when he was watching that dance, and of course, that year that he spent abroad in America that made him, <coughs> that made him crack in. He goes back to Egypt, becomes a seminal figure in the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and he writes a couple books. One of them is The America I Have Seen, and the other um, is called Our Struggle with the Jews. So, I mean, the title itself probably gives you a little bit of an idea of what he addresses in that book, but he says that Jews are the worst enemies of Islam, that they're, wickedness and that, they, that they're wicked and double-dealing. He calls them every name in the book, but what's interesting is that he accuses them of leading Muslims away from their own religion, trying to uproot Islam and the Islamic revival. And so Jews become the conspiratorial force that they were in the middle, from the Middle Ages until uh, you know, today. In this time, in, in his eyes, a force which was trying to uproot the kind of fundamentalist view of Islam that he has. Um, he also thought, and this is fascinating, that Jews were basically behind the fabric of modern society. So he says, for example, quote, I quote, behind the doctrine of atheist materialism was a Jew, behind the doctrine of animalistic sexuality was a Jew, and behind the destruction of the family and the shattering of sacred relationships in society was a Jew. So those of you who have you know, been through Psychology 101 and Sociology 101 might identify Marx, Freud, and Durkheim as the people that he's, uh, that he's alluding to. We're all Jews, and so he, and somehow, contrib he somehow attributes modern, the fabric of modern society to the Jews. So again, the Jews get put in the spotlight as somehow responsible for, um, for the 
undermining of his global movement and the global movement that the Muslim Brotherhood takes on and, um, and the construction of the opposition movement, which is modernity, democratic, liberalism, and so on. Now his solution, it's important to note, was not the subjugation of Jews. I mean, he didn't want to give Jews a kind of dimmy status within a regime. He basically says, Allah brought Hitler to rule over them and did not succeed in destroying them. And he urges Allah to bring down upon them the worst kind of punishment. So, you know, basically saying, you know, Hitler didn't finish the job. Uh, so this is the kind of rhetoric and the kind of, not just rhetoric, the kind of deep-seated uh, ideas that were coming into uh, um, Qutub's head at the time. And um, they spread like wildfire, these ideas. Even when he was, he was eventually hung by the Egyptian government, the Muslim Brotherhood was outlawed for many years because of their activities in Egypt, not in Europe or the United States, but in Egypt, yes. Um, <clears throat> and most of the members who survived Ab um, Nasser's crackdowns were driven out of Egypt to Saudi Arabia, where they became relatively successful lawyers, doctors, businessmen, professors, and so on. So they rose the, through the ranks. And this is where the Muslim Brotherhood produced um, some seminal figures in the Islamist terrorist world, including um, two figures. He, um, Qutub's, uh, became the, um, one of Qutub's great fans was the, uh, was the nephew of his lawyer, who eventually became the founder of Egyptian Islamic Jihad and the second in command for Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. And the other was someone you might have heard of, might ring a bell, he was studying with Muhammad Qutb, who is Said Qutb's brother, his name is Osama bin Laden. So Al-Qaeda and um, Hamas, uh, they both came out of the Brotherhood of Hamas, in Hamas's charter they say it outright, that they're part, they're a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. So the dif there are differences of course between the Saudi Wahhabism and the Brotherhood, but they agreed to spread, they agreed on spreading the Salafist view of Islam Worldwide, that was a fundamental agreement that they had. And they were looking at Europe's young, growing Muslim population as a kind of fertile breeding ground. A post, there were a lot of post, in post-World War II, there were a lot of labor shortages. And so they were eyeing Europe. And I think um, they were self-consciously aware that the lack of social bonds and weak spiritual faith of many European societies and later American societies, because uh, they came a little later to America, um, was, was exactly what they were looking for to spread this, this, this kind of ideology. Uh, so again, as Tocqueville feared, an apathetic, individualistic, and increasingly isolated generation had emerged, and the Muslim Brotherhood zeroed in on that kind of Achilles heel of democratic society. So you have soft despotism creeping in. Now, um, high-ranking members of the Muslim Brotherhood, they began to arrive in Europe in the 1950s, and I, fortunately, I don't have time to go through the, the, whole, the whole thing. I'm just going to start, I'm just going to do the bottom, the bottom rang there, which are the, the, not the top organizations, which oversee the main on-the-ground organizations, but basically you have, um, starting with Germany, you have, um, you have Hassan al-Banna's secretary, Saeed Ramadan, who established what is now the third largest organization in Germany called the Islamic Society of Germany. Um, they also established the Islamic Center of Munich and, um, 
In France, his brother, Tariq Ramadan, who some of you might heard of because he's a kind of iconic, he has a kind of iconic reputation in France. He has a, almost an entire media empire. He became a seminal figure in one of the organizations that um, the Conseil Francais de Coutumusulman, which was a kind of council that the French government constructed to try to uh, streamline all of the Muslim organizations into one organization. They, they developed this council and it kind of backfired because this organization, Union des Organisations Islamiques de France, took very, a lot of important seats and this was basically a Muslim Brotherhood entity. Um, Kardawi was involved in this organization. Uh, Ramadan was involved, Tariq Ramadan was involved in this organization as well. So you have um, in Germany and in France important Muslim Brotherhood networks that developed from the beginning in Germany. I forgot to mention something important. Why did they originally choose Germany? Because there were affinities with Nazi Germany and they found intellectual, not intellectual, but ideological ground and affinities within Germany. So in the UK, same story. Um, the, some of the seminal figures within the Muslim Brotherhood created Muslim Council of Britain, uh, which was founded by Kamal Hilbawi, and this is a very important figure who um, helped establish two of the most important um, organizations in Europe. Now, moving to the US, which I assume a lot of you are waiting for because it affects us so directly. Basically, one of the main figures, especially involved in Islamic banking in Saudi Arabia, Mahmoud Abu Saud, had family that established mass Muslim American society uh, in the MSA, Muslim Student Association. Uh, these were organizations that are still growing very quickly in the US. They started mostly in college campuses around North America and they spread, they have over 600 chapters now across North America. Um, now they, they are responsible for, um, uh, this is MASS, the Muslim American Society, which they're responsible for a lot of rhetoric and publications that um, demonize Jews and especially go after Israel and demonize Israel. And I'll just play you one very quick video, if you'd like, um, at a MSA rally, San Francisco State uh, MSA rally. So if, if you didn't hear, he said, we ain't got F-16s, we ain't got helicopter gun chicks, we ain't got tanks, what do we have to throw at them? I'll throw my life at them. That's not suicide, that ain't suicide, I'm sorry. That's martyrdom. So that, that is being said in a student rally um, in a university in the United States by an organization founded by the Muslim Brotherhood who has the kind of ideological links which I've just gone over. Now, they're also, uh, you can say that this is freedom of speech in some sense. Um, it's not, if, you're, if, you get if you get specific about what you say, it's a fine line. Uh, you know, th that's a question that the lawyers um, argue about, but there have been convictions, and I can't go through them all because there's a lot of convictions within, within these organizations 
There have been students and important figures that have been convicted for aiding and abetting terrorist activities. And unfortunately, we don't have the time to go through them. I have an email if you're interested in learning more about some of the convictions within, within the employees, especially, of these organizations. Um, there's also Hamas fronts uh, that have been shut down in the United States. Remember, Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a, it's a designated terrorist organization in the U.S., but still um, Hamas fronts crept up. And these are different forms of uh, money laundering and um, uh, criminal activity that, that I look at. Now, this, these are some of the foundations that have um, the Holy Land Foundation, for example, which was shut down. Um, and there was a document, these are some Hamas fronts in the United States. There's, I want to um, talk uh, at the end, this is the, the, the final part of my, of my lecture right now, about some documents that were seized during uh, raids uh, of the Holy Land Foundation in, an, in another European bank called the Al-Taqwa Bank, because these are seminal documents which I think teach us a lot about the global um, strategy of the Muslim Brotherhood. These were documents that were seized. Now, in one document which was seized by the Holy, uh, um, when the FBI raided the Holy Land Foundation offices, it was by one of the Muslim Brotherhood's brothers who was pretty high up, <coughs> called Zaid al-Noman, he said, Front groups are one method to communicate the Ikhwan. Ikhwan is the brother, it's the Muslim brother, basically. The Ikhwan's point of view. A front is not formed until after a study, after an exhaustive study. And then he talks about the last front group, which was the Islamic Association of Palestine um, in this document. Now, uh, <coughs> to move to the next document, which was seized in 2001. Um, the al Bank, it was incorporated in 1988 by prominent members of the Muslim Brotherhood. And it includes Yusuf Nada, who is one of the most prominent members, and another former neo-Nazi Muslim convert named Ahmed Huber. And when they raided his house, they found, um, well, Swiss police raided his house, and they found a document, a very interesting document, which I'd be happy to send anyone, because I have a translation from the Arabic, and it's called The Project. Um, it's a 14-page document which outlines the strategy of the Muslim Brotherhood to conquer Europe and beyond. It has similarities with some documents that Yusuf al-Qardawi has published, and he might be one of, we think he might be one of the authors, we're not sure, but it looks like it. And it, it's written in the document, quote, to dedicate ourselves to the establishment of an Islamic state, their goal is to dedicate themselves to the establishment of an Islamic state, in parallel with the gradual effort aiming at gaining control of power through centers and institutional action, um, they talk about study centers and understanding the philosophy and plan of other movements. They talk about the Jews as the enemy of Muslims and the development of a modern surveillance system by means of advanced technology. We don't know what all this means, but some of it we do. Uh, now, they're also talking in this document on the final pages, about an expressed goal, goal number 12, adopt the Palestinian cause as a part of a worldwide Islamic plan with the policy plan and means of jihad uh, to combat Zionism 
And it says they aim to, quote, nourish a sentiment of rancor with respect to the Jews and refuse all coexistence. So, so much for multiculturalism. Uh, <coughs> this is a document, a government, a government document, which I'd be happy to furnish <coughs> to anyone who's interested. Uh, I don't know how many people enjoy reading this on the weekends, but uh, <coughs> the project also talks about a deliberate and self-conscious effort to understand the weaknesses of our democracy and exploit them from within. Um, and I think they've caught on well to our proclivities towards individualism, apathy, tyranny of the majority, and through political correctness, they exploit those, those very weaknesses that we have by, by accusing anyone who analyzes their, or goes too far and understands too much of being an Islamophobe or a racist. Um, so I think perhaps Tocqueville was onto something when he wrote, quote, that it's difficult to conceive how men who have entirely renounced the habit of directing themselves could succeed at choosing well those who will lead them. Because now we're going to talk a little bit about the United States and our situation today. And I want to touch on another seminal document before we do that, which is um, a document called an explanatory Mem memorandum on the general strategic goal for the group in North America. It was seized in 1991 by a high-ranking member of the Muslim Brotherhood after. Uh, and um, it was produced during a trial for the Holy Land Foundation. He says, in this document, it says that Islam is becoming part of the homeland in which it lives. Um, it is stable and rooted in the spirit and minds of its people. And it should be enabled in the lives of its society. It has firm and have firmly established organizations. And it talks about something called the civilizational jihadist process, which um, is a, it says is a kind of, it says the Iqwan must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands, so by our own hands and the hands of the believers so that it is eliminated and God's religion is made victorious over all other religions. Um, I think that's shocking uh, to, to read something like that <clears throat> and to read that in a document which is based on an organization which we'll sh we shall see later has a very, I mean, at the very end of my talk, which is coming up very soon, has a very strong grip in the United States going up to the very highest levels of our government. Um, now, in terms of political alliances within Europe, you know, because of these, this strategy of trying, you know, there's a, it, there's a, it, within this document, I didn't finish reading it, but he talks about possessing the mastery of the art of coalitions, quote, the art of absorption and the principles of, quote, cooperation in order through gradual and flexible mechanisms to gain power. Okay, did everyone get that part? It's very important. <laughs> um, so now if you look at political alliances within the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood's reach, if you look at Europe, for example, former Labor Minister Tony Benn uh, rubbing elbows with the Muslim Association of Britain, showing up at his protests, condemning Israel together with um, you know, workers of the world and socialists and communists and radical Islamists, there's a kind of fusion of all of these movements, and you can see how they're collaborating. For example, Ken Livingston, the former mayor of London, same thing, refused to condemn suicide bombings against Israel and attended 
sessions of the Muslim Brotherhood's European Council for Fatwa and Research. Um, in Germany, the ID, IGD, uh, up until very recently, was receiving you know, state funds, even though they were founded by the Brotherhood. And then finally, in, within our own country, within America, um, we have in the White House examples of Muslim Brotherhood figures who have infiltrated under Clinton and Bush and been welcomed with open arms under Obama into the White House. <clears throat> you have, for example, Abdurrahman Alamudi, who is the advisor of, of Bill Clinton. You can see a picture here, Bill Clinton and Al Gore. <clears throat> I don't see his picture around much anymore, but Bill Clinton, yes, still an important figure. And he infiltrated into the White House here in a rally. Um, he says something. Anyone a supporter of Hamas here? Hear that, Bill Clinton, we're all supporters of Hamas. I wish they added that I'm also a supporter of Hezbollah. Anyone else a supporter of Hezbollah here? He was convicted on October 15, 2004, to 20, 23 years in prison um, for various um, crimes, including a plot to assassinate the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. In July 2005, um, the Treasury Department announced that Alamudi had funneled a million dollars to Al-Qaeda through a Saudi charity. And finally, um, within the White House today, uh, well, I didn't get into Bush. Again, they walked in. He didn't know about it. There were some figures like Louis Safi, who was training Pentagon officials within the Naval Postgraduate School. But ultimately, these figures, these, these, these presidents were not aware. I don't know how. I mean, you'd think they would do a more secure background check, but they were hoodwinked, in a sense, and allowed to um, infiltrate into the White House, or, or let's say succeeded in doing so. Under Obama, um, while he, he, many of his, while Bush and Clinton Actually, once they found out they rejected the Ikhwanis under his administration, he's sought out Muslim Brotherhood members for advice, training, and even administrative appointments. Uh, Rashad Hussein is the, was the Obama administration's envoy to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, and he provided advice on national security and Muslim outreach. Remember the Obama administration this last one, this is a picture. The Obama administration supported the, the ousted Muslim Brotherhood, President Mohammed Morsi, and he called for the, the, his release when he was in jail. And very recently, just a couple weeks ago, that picture was taken in the State Department um, where you have an important member of the Muslim Brotherhood um, making the Rabia sign, which is the sign symbol of, of the Brotherhood within the State Department, they were invited. Within the State Department, there's Morsi on the right, um, within the State Department. Now, what's incredible is in December of last year, so just a couple months ago, um, while, Interpo while Interpol was finally chasing Yusuf al-Qardawi around Europe for incitement to murder, and also for helping break out Morsi out of jail, the um, White House issued a statement in response to a petition of 213,000 signatures um, urging the U.S. to designate the Muslim Brotherhood
as a terrorist group. And this, uh, this statement said, quote, we have not seen credible evidence that the Muslim Brotherhood has renounced its decades-long commitment to nonviolence. Um, end quote. So to conclude, I'd like to conclude with a quote from a thinker, Edmund Burke, who says, when bad men combine, and good must associate, uh, the good must associate, else they will fail, they will I'm sorry, else they will fall one by one in unpitied sacrifice in a, contempt, in a contemptible struggle. And I think that we've seen, to just make my conclusive remarks, I think that we've seen political leaders and private citizens, I've demonstrated, that are seeking to empower Ikhwanis by posing as self-proclaimed representatives of the Muslim community. This is actually, in turn, infuriating many Jews, Christians, and also moderate Muslims who are infuriated that the White House <coughs> in the past and in the present is doing this. Um, and on the other extreme, we should mention there are racist and inaccurate publications and films against Muslims and against Islam. Now, between those two extremes, between those two extremes, you have a number of people who are well-informed, who dare to speak out. A lot of them have fled, a lot of them are moderate Muslims who have fled tyranny in, other, in their native countries and are speaking out. And some of them are just academics and other keen observers. And if these people aren't driven underground by these groups, then they're judged guilty by the silent tribunals of public opinion. Think tyranny of the majority, think political correctness. Um, in, in France, where I live, the main slogan is pas d'amalgam, don't make generalizations. You know, the experts now on what, what went on in the Paris attacks are not allowed to speak because if they utter the word Islam, then they're accused of amalgam, generalizations. And th this is a kind of, I believe, a kind of tyranny that Tocqueville predicted when he said that there exists a network of, quote, small, complicated, painstaking, uniform rules through which the most original minds and most vigorous souls cannot clear a way to surpass the crowd. Now, the solution, I believe, um, may be found in the problem itself. These lone voices, I think, should come forth and associate like Tocqueville advises, and like the Iquanis know, is the most important thing is to associate into organizations, grassroots organizations, and academic organizations, and political and social organizations, and um, um, in order to counter this. And perhaps this might sound ethnocentric, and perhaps it is, but I think the choice between Tocqueville and Kutub goes beyond uh, uh, the choice between cultures or civilizations. I think it is a choice between universal rights, such as freedom and equality versus, versus tyranny. And their greatest hope is that we remain ambivalent and silent. Thank you. Okay, so we're gonna take a few uh, questions. We have time, so Glenn, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm gonna start off with a question. Um, so, can you, you, you can hear well in the back? Okay. So, given your experience studying the Muslim Brotherhood, what, what is happening in the United States? And I ask this question, uh, it's an open-ended question. In the last few weeks, uh, 
by design or by accident, the Israeli government over this invitation to the Congress has been alienated from the United States. The Democratic Party is split, the Jewish community is split, and now it turns out that the invitation uh, and the controversy was a mistake by the New York Times, but the, as they say, the horses are out of the barn. Um, you have Obama meeting with the Muslim Brotherhood and some, some bad people several weeks ago. You now have this speech at the breakfast uh, meeting where Obama said to get off your high horse. And now you have a situation where Obama said, and he did not correct himself, but he said that um, the, the, the murder of the uh, four people executed in the grocery store in your neighborhood in Paris was a random act. And he did not, yeah. and his spokespeople did not clarify the act. Now here we have a social movement, a reactionary social movement, which is using, and I'm choosing my words carefully as a scholar, it uses, as you pointed out clearly, genocidal anti-Semitism as a key component of its social movement. And yet the American government, the only government in the Western world, we have conservatives in the United Kingdom and in Canada, and we have socialists in France. Every government in Europe and in Canada speak about the cult of death, radical Islam, jihadism, and anti-Semitism. What is going on in the United States of America? Why is this schism being created? And given your expertise, what, what is happening with the Obama administration and what is happening to our intellectual community, the Jewish community? Mm. What, what's going on here? Yeah. Well, I think there's, the people are shocked, even ec experts that I talk to, people in the White House, in the Congress that I've spoken to, are in, some of them are in shock, and they've given explanations which ultimately, I think, point back to Obama's intellectual and educational influences. And I think we need to start looking very closely, if we haven't already, at the kinds of people that he surrounded himself with. And I think that will give us a good idea, the, you know, the Reverend Wright and uh, the kinds of people, even at, at this university, Edward Said and um, Noam Chomsky, these types of figures, I think we, start, we need to start uh, reading that that literature and trying to understand and piecing together this kind of, uh, let's say, worldview that he's espousing, which, um, which, which ultimately, uh, I think, is anti-democratic and certainly anti-Semitic. Um, the language that he's chosen lately is not an accident. I, I think every word that he says is crafted very carefully. And when he says, for example, uh, a deli, it's actually a, a major supermarket, kosher supermarket, uh, where I live and where I go, actually. It's the crossroad of five different neighborhoods. It's a massive supermarket. A deli was randomly attacked. Someone just randomly attacked. Ahmed Kulabali was just a random guy. He wasn't affiliated with any network, even though he actually did an interview in the supermarket and said that I'm coming here from ISIS, and I'm here to kill Jews. So I think we need to weigh these words carefully. These are not random words. The random, we have to look at the r randomness of random. <laughs> I see it. Yeah. No, 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 the person behind you.
appreciate your research. I think there's a reason why, A, this is in the way back of a campus. If this were a meeting on the opposite, I'm trying to understand or look at problems of anti-Islamic feeling. There'd be crowded halls, and it would be advertised all over the campus, usually. Um, this is people, why were people walking out of the room? Um, and this is nothing new. And you'll forgive me, but you're asking questions that were asked after the Holocaust. And people in Germany and all over Europe were saying, politically correct things, weigh the decisions. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to be bothered. And why do you think there's so few people here? And why do you think so many people walked out. I came with the hope that you were gonna really open up the discussion about what goes on in liberal democracies on liberal campuses. Um, I encountered this in high gear right after 9-11 on the City College campus where I was studying for a master's. Every academic department was there were stomp out Zionism signs on the walls. People hid their yarmulkes when they came to and from the campus. Do I have to say more? I mean, I agree with you, grassroots organizations. Do you think the people in this room can do something about it? I just feel so helpless, and this has been going on for 20 years in this very neighborhood. And it probably was going on during the Second World War, and Obama's not the first president to not come out in favor of the Jews. Roosevelt, we all know, did the same thing and let the Jews perish. And it'll happen again or something similar. And I just don't see that, you know, understand it. It's not that hard to understand. The Jews have always been hated and they hate themselves and they're willing to turn against themselves. So they do it here. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you. I, and your sincerity is very appreciated. Thank you. So Erwin has a question. Mm -hmm. uh, Glenn, first, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It was an easy and flown quartet to get the world. And thank you for a very studious research, you know, which is evident in the, your presentation. It didn't happen by itself. I realize it's a lot of work. The question we're confronted with, I think, is what do we do? We, uh, we have a government, presently, that doesn't hear anything about what you're saying. They don't believe what you're saying. Yeah. They're in a totally different direction. And I would, what I would like to see happen, and maybe, Charles, this is a suggestion, is you can take this product that you have just, we just heard, which is very informative, factual, and put it in some booklet form. I will see to it that the 630 members of Congress and the Senate and other people who are, we rely upon, I'm giving up on the White House. It's not going to matter to them. Mm -hmm. But what does matter is the legislators that we elect. I want to bombard them with the information you've just described. And I think ISGAP can do that. I would love to see you undertake that. So I have good news. All of our seminars on similar themes are going to be correlated quickly into a serious book 
Uh, Glenn will have an article in the book, and there are other leading scholars that will, are saying very coherent, similar things. And yes, I think that we, we, can get, we can distribute it to Congress. Glenn and I were just in Washington, had a very good trip there. And there are people who are very sympathetic on both sides of the aisle, not just Republicans, but many Democrats are also very concerned. Yeah. And the, the, P, the P in this gap is for policy. I think um, Charles thought of that from the beginning, that knew that we need to not just be a bunch of academics sitting in our ivory tower, but we need to map and decode these ideas and these phenomena and then take the kind of concrete steps that Irwin's talking about um, going to Congress. And we just came back from, a, I believe, a very successful trip to Washington. And so we're, we're trying to be a kind of hybrid organization that does both. And it's, I think we've, we're, 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 we're on the right track, I think. Supermarket, yeah. Um, after these events take place, and many other events, uh, there are those who will get up and they stand up for Israel and they march on and on, and that uh, parade that they had uh, the following day or several days later, they all say the proper things and they're all going to stand and they're going to fight against it. But uh, I think at best, all of those words are. This is, comes from a country where they're going to uh, recognize the Palestine as a state. That's one thing. So I take everything they say, although it's the right things to say, with a grain of salt. Um, the other thing is um, we could be here all night saying things that Obama said or other people said about Israel. I think what we should do is Take them at their word. You know, I could, there's so many things that I could say about motives and stuff for what the, the enemy does. And there's many of that, there are many different factions. But the perpetrator of the crime in the Kosher Delicatessen made a statement. But we don't need anybody. Right. There's nothing I can add to what he said. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I agree with you that we tend, especially academics, but other people too, tend to over-intellectualize some of these movements. I mean, they are very complicated. I have pictures, here's a, you know, a network, <laughs> just to give you an idea of a network that we're looking into now. These are complex movements, but we also have to listen to very simple people like Ahmed Kulbali who said, you know, I came here from ISIS, I came here to kill Jews, or the Kouachi brothers who shouted, we're avenging the prophet. This is our goal. That's why we're killing Charlie Hebdo, because we're avenging the prophet. And we have to look at also the face value of those words. Um, now, in terms of the rally, I'll just very comment very briefly about the France attacks, because I've been talking about this um, over the past couple days and weeks. And I think from the beginning, you're right. It was a bad start. The fact that um, Obama didn't show up, that Netanyahu wasn't invited, that Abbas was there, that I was there. So I know, I can tell you, the, generally the Muslim community, the Arab Muslim community was not represented demographically. They were around 10% of France. They were not 10% at the rally. They were less than 1%. Um, so we have a isolated Israel 
an absent America, a silent, uh, in France at least, um, Muslim Arab majority, and we have Fra France, which is basically the kind of stage of, of this comedy that's looking more like a tragedy than a comedy, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I heard about it. Yeah. About criminal charges brought against the state of Israel. There was a lunch book. I didn't go to it today. It's a very confusing title, but about black, transgender, anti jail, anti pink washing, solidarity with the Palestinians. And I walked by the room, I was with my friend. I said, I can't stomach to go in there. And they probably got a good research grant as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, this is, the campus is, is ground zero, and I've seen so much go on in American campuses. It's a subject I would like to do maybe that as a subject of a entirely, an entire presentation just on what's going on in American campuses, if, if I'm invited. It's one of them. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think that's what I was thinking about, that it, it's not that the French government says, you know, passes a law saying you can't speak about radical Islam. There's no law in the books that says you cannot speak about radical Islam. But there is a passive, and it's much worse in the U.S., actually, but in France is developing now after the attacks because they're going through a kind of post-9-11 moment. There's developing this passive pressure to avoid certain terms and sanitize one's vocabulary when one speaks about those issues. And that's what I mean, that it's not a direct influence. There's no law directly saying you can't say this, but a kind of pressure. You're basically like Finkelkraut or uh, some other French intellectual. You know, he was on TV and was attacked by the Ministry of Education. Um, and it has an influence, of course, on his reputation, even though he's in the Académie Française, so he's very respected, but, you know, these attacks. Um, Arno Klarsfeld, from the famous Klarsfeld family in France, um, actually is being sued for saying the most innocuous things. He said something like, uh, and I quote him, <laughs> uh, there's a problem in the suburbs with some North African uh, youth, uh, something very innocuous like this, and he's actually being taken to court for this. So there's the not-so-passive, not-so-subtle um, pressure, and then m more importantly, I think there's the, the passive pressure that we have to look at, the, what Tocqueville called tyranny of the majority, which I think is important to understand.
Yeah. Um, well, you know, on paper, the Muslim Brotherhood is Sunni and the Iranians are Shia. Uh, so one would think that there wouldn't be a lot of um, wouldn't be a lot of uh, connection between the two, but I think it's a, in some ways a subject a kind of under investigation. We know that uh, the current administration wants to change its tack on Iran and lessen sanctions and perhaps bring it into um, the international world as a kind of regional power. And the fact that the government is also at the same time, um, you know, basically um, banishing, uh, not banishing, but, uh, you know, they sabotaged uh, Bibi Netanyahu's visit to the, to the White House through the New York Times piece, which in, an, in a small amendment to the piece actually admitted that they got it wrong, they reversed it, that Bibi actually did ask the president for permission before he went to Congress. And that was just published, I can send it all to you, it was published in tiny fine print. So something is going on um, uh, because those types of mistakes don't just happen. Uh, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I have to look closely at those types of things and say, you know, they're preparing the ground, they just met the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they're preparing the ground for a radical departure from, uh, with, 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 with the U.S., with the past U.S. policy towards Iran. Um, so we're living in a pretty scary moment, I think, in American history. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, th I mean, I think there was that distancing between Hamas and Iran, um, not a break, but a, but a distancing. Uh, so, I, d I, don't, I don't think it's clear exactly what their relation is right now. It's, it's rocky, I think, at best, uh, because, because of the war in Syria, and because of taking different sides. That doesn't mean that at cer certain levels, they don't have... Um, they're not cooperating and they don't have affinities with one another, but um, I think the, the, the best kind of vehicle through fusing the two, unfortunately right now, has become the executive branch of, of our government. And that um, is, uh, in some ways, they're succeeding at doing what these organizations can't do on their own. Uh, and that's something that, uh, for me, is quite shocking. What do you think could be done to raise awareness? So, yeah. So there's, there's educating policymakers, and you know what? what yeah. Can we do? Well, I mean, one of the reasons I joined ISCAP is because I I think that it's on the forefront of the solution to this problem. It's where we're, we're facing a huge task, but I think the first step is to understand these movements. Uh, because they're complicated and we need to decipher them and map them and it, it takes a lot of work. Charles and I were doing some of it over the past week. Um, and, and then we need to draft um, a strategy in the same way that they do for, <laughs> in the same way that they do for, in, in a sense, in terms of structurally, for not taking over America but for influencing our, um, our leaders um, from the ground up. 
and that requires working with policymakers, uh, writing books, writing articles, writing op-eds, and we hope that you'll all join us on this. And I'll say one more thing. I, of course, agree with Glenn, but for people who are in the business community or connected to people in the business community, I, I feel odd doing this, but we have to do it. We're really living, as Glenn said, I think in a very precarious moment historically. And it's serious for the Jewish people, not just for Israel, but for the Jewish people, and for human rights and democratic principles. Also for minorities, for moderate Muslims, for women, for gay people, for religious pluralism. The values, just the basic notion of citizenship, equality under the law. And if you know people or if you are inclined, we really need funding. And I know that ISGAP, we're literally working in the best universities in the Western world, literally. We have a network of the best scholars in every kind of subject related to this issue. And with a little bit of funding, you know, scholars are relatively uh, cheap workers. Um, with a little bit of money, we could really do some important work. So please consider it or, or let other people that you think would be inclined to be philanthropists, to let, let them know about us because not many people know about us. Okay, there's, I think there's one more comment or question, sir. Yeah, Alamudi, Abdurrahman Alamudi. Oh, he's a member of the uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, <laughs> he's a delegation making the Rabia symbol, and he um, he was invited. To a, to, to, to a meeting with, at the State Department along with other Muslim Brotherhood officials. So that's who he is, okay? Oh, sorry. And I, you know, we were, I'll just say, we were talking earlier, and in terms of discourse analysis, I wonder if the impact of a meeting like that has on some of these speeches about getting off your high horse and not recognizing anti-Semitism. You know, sometimes when you're in that environment, it takes effect. Anyways, so thank you for coming. We have a whole slew of lectures in the folders that's taking place in New York. And again, on March the 24th, 5th, with Boaz Ganor, who's a leading scholar on counterterrorism. Thank you for coming. Thank you.